Last episode, you heard Tim Akamoth's story, Waterman. Tim is director of digital content here at WBEZ and helped launch the Afterwater podcast. As part of that project, we've been asking writers to imagine the Great Lakes decades from now. We sent the writers research and paired them with scientists and policy experts. I'm Shannon Heffron, one of the reporters and producers working on that series. I sat down with Tim to talk about his story and about the project overall. I want to just start off by asking you, you work as a as a journalist, but you also work um, as a fiction writer. I'm curious, as you approach this particular story and, and the project in general, how you started thinking about what are the strengths of each medium? W- w- what can you do in one medium that you can't do in the other? As, as a news person, someone who's in the news all the time, the problem with it is, is that early on I started to see fatigue build in, especially around constantly covered events about the time that CNN came to be. The Iraq war got so much coverage. You were seeing the same uh, scenes over and over and over again. And the problem was is that it wasn't challenging people anymore. And the thing I like about fiction is that each new story brings something different that allows you to think about a particular subject. Some stories deal with, you know, innate human issues. Some deal with big topical things. You know, I was really fascinated by the fact that J.R.R. Tolkien used the uh, trilogy, you know, The Hobbit, to basically deal with uh, the age of industrialization, to talk about its impact on Europe. And ever since then, I've been fascinated with this process and wondering if there's some role that fiction can play in the news. And when we decided to do this project, it seemed like such a natural fit to take something like dystopic fiction or dystopian fiction and you know, through that lens, look at something like climate change, which is one of those topics that's, again, very much in the news all the time. And I think people are fatigued by hearing about it. Now, talking specifically about the stories we did, were there areas where you saw us being able to do something in fiction that we aren't able to do in our in our normal coverage? Absolutely. Uh, in Nettie uh, Okorafor's story, Poison Fish, Uh, There is a scene where essentially this wall blows up, this wall that divides the city. Uh, That's a particular thing that I think fiction plays well to uh, because, you know, we don't know what the political situation, you know, what uh, the human situation is going to be. We already know and the coverage we can do today is that Chicago is a segregated city. But 100 years from now, what is the segregation built on? Is it still a racial divide? Probably. So uh, Nettie's story really uh, goes towards something that planners think about a lot, which is uh, what, what could the city look like in 100 years, 200 years, with, with all of these things taken into account. My story uses uh, fiction to play more into the political world, which is what happens politically that would need to take place in order for us to reach the decision of seceding from the United States. And I, th- I thought it was a fascinating idea. I'm interested, where did that come from? Where did that idea originate from for you? Well, secession has always been interesting to me as, as uh, a Ukrainian. I you know, was around early on when uh, Ukraine uh, really took its freedom you know, as the Soviet Union was disintegrating. Um, I followed a lot of secession movements to kind of see what, what, is it, what is it about the identity of a people group that makes them want to uh, you know, disengage themselves from the larger, uh, you know, world. And the thing about uh, the Great Lakes is that it's not really about a, an identity of a people. It's about how uh, 
contained the basin is. The basin is contained and, and therefore almost cleanly could be cut out and, and placed on its own. And that's what Metropolitan Planning Council members talk to us about is the fact that essentially because it's so clean, because we have uh, this compact. The Great Lakes the, Compact. We had the Great Lakes Compact, which is, which is essentially a political tool that governs the usage of the water in the lakes. There are so many pieces in place that could be used for secession. So as someone who was interested in secession anyway and, and you know, all the different movements from Texas, you know, uh, you know, to the obviously what led up to the Civil War, uh, you know, so many of these things are, are human based. And I was just fascinated that this is actually, you know, more of a geological or a um, hydrological basis for secession and protecting something that is just such a vital resource to uh, you know, not just America, but really the rest of the world. Now, you talked to Josh Ellis at the Metropolitan Planning Council? I did. I did. Josh was great. Uh, he wanted to shut his door because he goes, when we're talking secession, we should probably rein it into our conversation. And it's a tough one because, you know, it's it's such a hot political thing. And, you know, you're, you're speculating wildly. But Josh was great because he really pointed out the fact that it, it is really a self-contained system. And that got me thinking a lot about, you know, what it would need to join together. You know, you'd have all these pieces, all these states that kind of touch the lakes and all the political people that would, would be involved. And Josh really steered me towards an idea of using a political system where people are uh, so protective and so involved over a long period of time that they actually invest themselves in preservation of the lake. You know, and it, border, it, it could borderline, you know, it's fiction, but it could borderline on conspiracy theory if you didn't kind of put it into the perspective of, you know, this is happening over maybe 100 years of, you know, the states uh, that border the lakes realizing they need to actually uh, do something for their own good, for the good of the people, for the good of the lakes. But as Josh Ellis explained, you know, with water, with the water in the lakes being, you know, becoming more and more valuable as time goes on because of droughts, because of other issues, industry is going to move towards the lakes. And that is going to then influence the legislative bodies in those states because they're going to become more reliant on that industry. And as that impact happens, you'll see more and more power, more and more influence shift to those states that border the Great Lakes. And that's where you start to get the impetus for them coming together to reach the idea eventually of secession. Now you're speaking about industry and coming to the Great Lakes. I know one of your favorite industries happens to be <laughs> Beer. That's right. And in doing research on this, um, we you came across some um, examples of breweries, maybe even already starting to think about where they locate because of water access. Yeah, absolutely. Fresh water is vital to the brewing industry, and we're seeing in California already that as the aquifers are running low, rivers are not. Uh, they're running way too low for brewers to actually take that water. That is so. You know, the taste of the water in a, in a specific area is vital to that. You know, selling that beer over time, people get to like the taste of that beer. And so if you don't have a fresh water source for a long period of time that's going to be untainted or, um, you know, not, you know, especially river systems, which can change very rapidly uh, based on weather systems. But the lakes, you know, they've got water for, you know, for a long, long time. And so there is this, this idea that, I mean, industry is already moving to the Great Lakes for the purpose of water. We know that. We can see it happening. Uh, you know, this, my story takes it to a whole other level where massive industry shifts uh, to, the, to the Great Lakes, which really strengthen the Great Lakes politically. Um, and, you know, it sets the basis for the idea of secession. Was there anything else in your research that genuinely surprised you that you didn't know about? Chicago is this dot on, uh, you know, on the corner of one of the lakes. It's a very important dot. I, you know, I didn't realize that Chicago is actually a gateway for releasing water from the lakes, which gives it a political place in this whole scenario. 
that is not really, uh, I think a lot of people aren't aware of that. When you think of Chicago being kind of an influencer of the Great Lakes, for me, it just seemed like a city that sits on the shoreline. But because it can release water downstream, it'll play a big political role, and it's it's a big partner in that you know uh, in the in the compact. I think the thing that that stood out to me though was that when you look at the basin, if you look at the boundaries of it, it's so contained. So there's all these states that touch it, but the rest of Illinois would not be a part of this basin. In fact, 20 miles outside of Chicago, it's no longer part of the basin. It's part of another river system, and that's what surprised me so much was that the Great Lakes are just so contained. You have kids, and as you've been listening to uh, some of the stories, you've um, had your kids around listening to them. Tell me what it's like to view these stories through the view of somebody who's who's younger and, and may actually be around um, for the time period that some of these stories are trying to deal with. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I thought maybe these, these were a little bit they're, – they're not stories that necessarily you would read to your 8-year-old, but I was listening to them on Saturday – uh, I was listening to the stories recently with my daughter. We played them all with the author interviews. And during that time where I was listening kind of for my own purposes, she asked a couple of questions about, you know, what is this about? And I kind of explained it to her. And then and then at the end of the stories, uh, uh, we kind of listened backwards. So at the end of uh, at the of the poison fish story, she says, Dad, how can we fix this? And it was just, it really hit me that she listened to the stories, figured out what they were about, understood the bigger context, and wanted to wanted to know what it would take to avoid that. And that's exactly the purpose of, of you know, of doing this, is getting people to think outside of the traditional sort of climate change arguments going on and looking at something in the future, you know, through this uh, dystopian fiction lens. So, uh, you know, kids today they get so much more information. They don't spend their summers just off goofing off. They're always, always being fed with information, either from their parents, their friends, or their, you know, mobile devices that they hang on to. Um, And the interesting thing is, is that they, I think, then are more susceptible to the big, you know, sort of, you know, heaves in like, um, you know, in culture. And sort of getting them to stop and pay attention to something is difficult. And so in this case, I was really surprised that more of an adult-type story um, series you know, would would catch on with my eight-year-old. Uh, it really it, it showed me something about the power of storytelling that I think uh, can get in and why it's so important that we embrace that in our culture. That was Tim Akamoff talking about his story, Watermen. To hear some of the science behind the stories in After Water, visit afterwater.tumblr.com. After Water is part of WBEZ's Front and Center Project. Front and Center is funded by the Joyce Foundation, improving the quality of life in the Great Lakes region and across the country.